My name is Dustin Kelly, but everybody calls me DJ. I'm prior army, serving as both a Ford observer and a military police officer. I spent the last 14 and a half years as a police officer and detective in a large metropolitan police department. Two things that I've learned throughout my career. One, everybody has a story to tell. And two, the best stories are true. This is the DTD Podcast. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the DTD Podcast. Tonight in the studio, a veteran news correspondent. In his four-decade network news career, some of the areas that he has covered are the Civil War in El Salvador, where he was kidnapped and threatened, the events leading to the bombing of the barracks in Beirut, the Oklahoma City bombing, where he spoke directly with the bomber himself, the Lockerbie tragedy, Baghdad, Afghanistan, Iraq, and was even embedded with his son, Carlos, who was also a news correspondent, in order to reconnect and gain the footage that was used in the documentary, The Hornet's Nest. This man has covered a ton of world-changing events, and tonight we will hear what he was thinking and go behind the scenes of one of the last great worldwide correspondents of the news. Tonight, I'm honored to introduce Mike Betcher. How are you, sir? Hi, DJ. Great to be here. Yeah, I'm so happy that you're here. Uh, so much of the stuff that you have done is so amazing. Uh, we're both from Oklahoma, and you've covered some stuff that was huge in uh, kind of my late teen years going into my adulthood, and then just the stuff that you've covered all over. Now, you started in the 80s, uh, in, as a matter of fact, 1980, covering the news. When you came from your family, was it a news family? Were you guys up on current events a lot? Did you enjoy that kind of stuff? What got you into that arena? I think we we're a really 1960s family. You know, when I was growing up uh, as a young man in elementary or a young child in elementary school and then going into junior high back in the 60s, um, you know, we would all gather around the television uh, at night you know, when we had dinner at 530 and watch Walter Cronkite. Uh, and I watched every newscast because my brother was in Vietnam and I thought, you know, I could catch a glimpse of my brother maybe. And uh, I didn't see uh, my brother in any of those stories, but I saw all of these network correspondents covering the Vietnam War. And that's, I, I, you know, I've thought about this a lot and I'm sure that's what set me on this path because, you know, I had great folks. You know, my dad was a wheat farmer and worked in the Conoco refinery um and mom was a school teacher uh you know pretty much just an average uh northern oklahoma k county boy uh and uh but i i really do think it was you know it was a different era back then you know back in the in the 60s you know there you know you were either going to watch well frankly you were just going to in that area you're going to watch either nbc with huntley brinkley or you're going to watch walter cronkite and, um, and so that's, that's kind of what hooked me. And I, you know, I was able to meet Walter later on, uh, later on in the 1970s, uh, before I went to that little cable startup in Atlanta. Well, let me ask you a question because you said it's a different era and I'm glad that you brought that up because a lot of today's society feels like they can't believe the news anymore. Now that seems to be, 
uh, kind of a poison of society anywhere. They don't believe anything they read or they believe too much of what they read. Can you talk a little bit about the differences back then when the news reported and now when the news is reported? Because I think there's definitely a difference in how they were reported. Well, I, you know, if you go back and look at the stories, I don't think it's the way the stories from news reporters are being done. I think what's, what has poisoned the well are the opinion shows posing as news shows on either side. And, you know, all of those shows run in prime time. Uh, and, you know, they're on a news network, but uh, whether you're on the left or the right, those are purely opinion shows. And I think it's, you know, it's really confused people. Uh, you know, at the beginning of CNN, uh, there was one talk show and then a couple of years, I'm trying to remember when Crossfire started. And frankly, Crossfire was the, the grandfather of, of all the shows that would, would come. But in Crossfire, you had someone from the left and someone from the right, Tom Braden and Pat Buchanan, for example, uh, interviewing someone and coming at it from their, their, uh, their directions. And, but also they really did have a shared set of facts. And I think that, you know, with now the, the, uh, the added layers of social media and everyone out there able to publish, uh, which is, which is great, but there, there isn't that, 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 CBS Evening News, and some people say, hooray for that, that that's not our only, you know, source of news. But there aren't a shared set of facts in the country. Everyone is, is uh, has, true or not, has their own set of facts. And, and I think that's why we can't get past um, this, this acrimony that's eating us alive, I believe. Yeah. And, and when you say that, that's exactly what I was thinking. It seems to me when you talk about Tom Brokaw and the evening news and things like that, back then it seemed like the news was just reported. Here's the facts. Here's the story that happened. And that's it. There wasn't a, an agenda behind it. There wasn't anything. It was just, this is what happened. And it seems to have changed now where it's more about the opinion than it is about the actual story. Well, he, here's what happened. Um, and, and I, I think I'm partly to blame for this. I did the first satellite live shot uh, in CNN history on the day it went on the air, June 1st, 1980. To do that, uh, a satellite uplink uh, the size of uh, the circumference of a house had to be put together and lifted on top with pulleys of a semi-trailer truck that was full of electronic equipment. And live was tough to do back then. It wasn't easy. Uh, we were doing it then on the docks of Key West, Florida during the Cuban boat lift, uh, which was a huge event going on. Cuban refugees fleeing by the tens of thousands in Cuba in small boats. Many of them died. It was a major global story back then, and we did it live. Now, since we can go live from anywhere, for example, in Afghanistan, I had... Uh, a satellite uplink. I, I've gone now from a satellite uplink the size of a, a real semi-trailer truck to something that's the size of a laptop. And that means that those reporters who did those stories, if you look at the evening newscast, whether it's uh, NBC or, or David Muir on ABC or on CBS, 
you're going to see basically the same stylish story you saw 40 years ago, I think. Where, where it changes is when those stories, when those same reporters then uh, are on those evening shows or now during the day and they're being questioned by the anchors and asking for their opinions. And, you know, doing live in a breaking news situation is like, uh, you know, doing the trapeze without a net. Yeah. And it is, you know, it's, it's not easy. And you have these anchors that want your opinion. And that's put a lot of correspondence in, you know, very difficult circumstances. So that is another factor, I think, is, is the live shot and reporters being asked for, you know, for their opinions on what's going on. You know, the stories they did are based on what we have on camera and have interviewed and gone out there. You can see where we've been, who we've talked to. Uh, and what you don't see is the editing process that goes on behind the scenes. But, um, you know, uh, when you're out there live and, and people are asking, what is your opinion on this and everything else? You know, I, I always uh, tried my best to, to stay away from that and just stick with what I could see. And what I had experienced and default to that. Uh, and I think that's, you know, that's been very confusing to the audience. Well, now that you're a professor and you teach these things, are you mm -hmm. seeing a different kind of journalist that's coming out? Because you have so much of this stuff with social media, with TikTok, with Instagram, with people, uh, like you said, kind of self-publishing and putting out there. Are, are you seeing people that are coming through and getting a degrees and looking at careers like that set kind of a different way than before? You know, not really. I mean, you know, this is at the age where we can shape them. And what, what I find is not many of them, if any, are watching traditional newscasts. They're getting everything on social media. So yeah, no, they, they come in with different sensibilities and they gather their news in a different way. Uh, and I think part of what we have to do is, is teaching before they can be news suppliers, teaching them to be news consumers as well. And, um, and, and, you know, I really stress because I'm old school and I, you know, I really stress cut out the BS, you know, you're not, you're not there for any political party or, or anything else. You're there to observe. You're there uh, to witness and to write uh, stories that you can share based on the facts uh, that are the, and the best possible information that you have at that time. And I think that you know that's that I teach my students that you, are given a great gift. You're given a front row seat to history. And once you have that ticket, you do not want to let it go. Uh, it is the most valuable ticket on earth. I can't think of a better job than the job I had for four decades. Uh, and that was to, you know, to, to witness history, to be on that front row. And, and that's what differentiates a lot of, um, people on, on different social media platforms who 
think they know because they saw it on TV as opposed to those who are actually there and uh, are witnessing uh, what's going on and talking. And, and, and plus, you know, there is on those, which you don't see, there is an entire, you know, you just don't write a story and it goes on the air. Right. You know, there is a, uh, a rather laborious script approval process that goes through several people and, uh, you know, pro, you know the, the senior producers, executive producers, the anchor looks at it. Um, and it's, it's gone over from everything from grammar uh, to, you know, uh, it looks like you have opinion in here and, you know, you, you need to take that out. So it's a very strenuous process and it goes on at every network uh, for their evening newscasts and the morning shows and on CNN and on Fox News. Same thing with their reporters uh, and on MSNBC. So, you know, it, it's you just can't throw anything out there. Um, and so and again, you know, hey, look, I, I know uh re reporters in every network you know i i'm now i guess i'm the grandfather on, on all of this but <laughs> and i was thinking that today because of what's going on in the ukraine you know i was there for the birth of the baby you know when the berlin wall fell and i was there with lakowinza and in the shipyards in gdansk when they were fighting for their freedom i was there in ukraine after the first moscow coup and it was a beautiful baby and we thought democracy was going to thrive and now that baby's grown up to have a lot of warts on it and and you know there are issues but i go back you know so far on all these various stories that i uh in every part of the globe that that uh i have i have uh, i have experience in just about any story you can imagine <laughs> so um but I, you know, I know all of these reporters. I know a lot of the reporters at Fox, and as I said, and and the other side of the spectrum, MSNBC, the, the folks that report the actual news uh, are are solid people. They know what they're doing. They follow it, and and those are values that I believe were drilled into them uh, when they were in in school. And if you know. Hopefully they had some good professors and most of them did who really, you know, drill in on that. And, and we certainly do at Gaylord College at OU and I'm sure they do at your alma mater at OSU, but um, it, uh, it, it, these are people who are out there and, and you look now at the folks in Ukraine, we had a Fox news reporter badly wounded today. Um, and these are people putting their lives on the line out there on that pointy end of the spear to tell those stories. Uh, and you know, that, that takes a real level of commitment because what you don't see, uh, are the families you leave behind, uh, and, uh, and the fact that people don't realize that some years you're gone from home as a foreign correspondent, war correspondent, you're gone from home over 300 days a year sometimes. And so it is, uh, it's a difficult life. It's, it's, it's a vocation, uh, but it, it is to me still one of the most rewarding things you can do uh, when done right. And right now, what I believe you're seeing from 
all networks is is some and, and and print is some really superb reporting what's going on on the front lines in Ukraine. Since you brought up family, I wanted to bring that up later, but since you brought it up, I want to get into that because <clears throat> that was a big point in your in your documentary, The Hornet's Nest. Uh, you, you talked about family and being gone all the time. And I'm going to ask you the same kind of question I ask these guys that come on the show that are special operators or law enforcement mm -hmm. that are always at work. You know what it does to a family. You talk about it openly in the documentary, how it estranged you from your son and things. So I always ask the question to them, if you know that it does this and you know what the possible outcomes of it are, why do it? Because you convince yourself it's that important that people need to see this, that people need to know that there's this guy named Lech Wałęsa in the shipyard and all he wants is democracy for Poland. And those events you report on uh, can can help change the world. I'll, I'll give you an example. Okay. And, um, and, and is that right? No. You know, thinking back on it, I probably should have said no. I never said no. I always said yes. Um, and I think that uh, sometimes I should have said no. Uh, but, you know, when you... <laughs> Uh, this story will, will take just a little bit here, but That's fine. Uh, after Desert Storm in 91, and I was embedded with the U.S. Marines that were the first into Iraq, our job was, the, the Marines I was covering, their job, and my job was to document it, was to go up the middle into Kuwait through the first defensive belt that was, you know, about a very wide and stretched the length of Kuwait and full of mines, surface laid mines. We had to walk through there, <laughs> tiptoeing through the mines to get into Kuwait. Uh, and, it, you know, and the war uh, progressed pretty quickly. And uh, after about a month in Kuwait City, after it was liberated, uh, I was actually less than a month, probably three weeks after it, uh, I was heading back home to Germany where I was living at the time. And I got beeped at the uh, Frankfurt airport and it was NBC in New York saying, hey, Mike, we hate to do this to you. We need to turn you around. Uh, Saddam is butchering the Kurds. And what had happened is the US, we didn't go all the way to Baghdad, the first President Bush, uh, uh, and, and I think smartly so, decided to hold fast, uh, kind of deplete Saddam's army, but not go all the way to Baghdad and just retake Kuwait. But we had urged the Kurds in the north and the Shiite in the south to uh, rise up against Saddam. Well, they did rise up, and we weren't there for them. And Saddam was massacring them. And, and this was happening in real time. And I got on the next plane, flew to Turkey, made my way um, uh, by literally planes, trains, automobiles, and foot uh, to the Turkish-Iraq border and then crossed over into Iraq uh, and it's a mountainous area, 
and I remember crossing over this one, this mountain bowl and looking down and it was a, a mountain bowl with filled with snow and there were at least a hundred thousand people there and they were in bad shape. They were bloodied, they were dying, they were freezing to death. And I looked at this disaster in the making, literally a hundred thousand. And I, I said, I have to do the best job I possibly can because the world needs to see this. And at this point, the, the pre President Bush, uh, first President Bush was not uh, going to recommit troops to help the Kurds. Well, flash forward almost 10 years and I'm in Tallahassee, Florida. Uh, now I'm back working with CNN and I'm covering the whole election fiasco back that went on there and the hanging chads in Florida and all of that. Uh, and every day, the uh, spokesperson for Vice President Gore, who was Warren Christopher, former Secretary of State, and uh, for, for then Governor Bush of Texas, was James Baker, a great man, um, and uh, former Chief of Staff of the White House, Secretary of State. I mean, he was, he, you know, he was a real powerhouse and a very smart man. And so he held a briefing and at the every, there were hundreds of reporters in this auditorium asking questions. All the main anchors were there. But after he made his opening statement, he would uh, look around the room to take the first question and people had their hands up and he'd look around the room until he got to me and he'd point at me and go, Mac, you know, that Texas drawl, and I go, okay, I got the first question. I, you know, um, well, this went on for five days like this. Every time he gave me the first question. And so after that fifth day, I went up to Secretary Baker and I said, sir, I really appreciate you giving me the first question, but why? And he said, you don't have any idea, do you? And I said, no, sir, I don't. He goes, let me take you back almost 10 years. And the Kurds had risen up in northern Iraq against Saddam. They were being butchered. They were cornered. They were about to be wiped off the face of the earth. Um, and I was urging the president that we needed to uh, intervene, create a no-fly zone, uh, make a huge humanitarian effort. And he wasn't budging. And then 6.30 Eastern time rolled around when the NB, uh, when uh, NBC Nightly News came on. I was, you know, back in Desert Storm, I was working for NBC. And he said, the president saw your story. And he turned to me and said, we got to go in. And, you know, you always think that maybe my story had an impact or does it have an impact? The only, you know, one of the few times I knew that it, it changed the course of history. Uh, you know, those Kurds, those little kids, those infants who were dying grew up to be our allies and fight against ISIS. Uh, and, you know, so that's what, that's a long way of answering your question. That went into my equation. You know, I thought that what I was doing was so important that my family came in second place. On and, and I was wrong. You know, in this instance, I'm glad I did what I did, you know, in telling the story of the Kurds. But I should have said no more. 
And, and I think there is a factor is you get you get addicted to being where the action is. It's true for reporters. It's true for soldiers and Marines, uh, all, all sorts of different people. And, but, um, you know, right now I'm, you know, I'm itching to, you know, to get to the Ukraine. Um, but I can't right now. I'm teaching. But this thing is going to go on for a while. And, and I think at some point I will end up back there uh, because I know that area and, and I know the history. And I know how this all went down. I speak a little Russian and I uh, worked a lot in Moscow. And I, you know, I know how I think I have pretty good idea how Russians think and 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 how Ukrainians think and and Eastern Europeans think. So but uh, yeah, no, that that's. You know, I wouldn't, and I tell my students in class, and I have some who've gone on to the networks, um, because I'm always looking for someone who has an interest in covering international news. Uh, and I tell them not to make the same mistakes I made. That to, you know, the family comes first. It took me a few decades to learn that, uh, you know, and, but, you know, it's and, and as well, it's also tough on your mental health. You can't see what you're exposed to for that length of time on a consistent basis and not have it have a dramatic effect on your mental health. So let me ask you something to that, then let's go to the flip of that coin. Let's say that you chose family and stuff. Do you think that now at the age you're at, what you've done everywhere you've been, you would regret that? You know, I don't regret it. And that <laughs> I, it's one of those things. I don't regret covering all of those. No, no, no. That, that's not what I mean. I'm okay. saying the opposite. Let's say you chose family. Let's say you didn't go to all those places. When you reach this point in your career, do you think you would look back and go, man, I, I missed out on this story. I missed out no, on this story. Do you think you that there would be any regret there? You know, we, uh, I don't think so. Um, because I don't know, you know, at the time, yeah, I would have regretted it. I would have been climbing the walls. But if looking back now, if I would have said no to some of those events that I covered, if I would have said when they transferred me from the wars in Central America and El Salvador and Nicaragua and the Contra War to, they, you know, they said, we're sending you to South Africa. Uh, we'd like to send you to South Africa because, the, you know, uh, the apartheid protests are turning incredibly violent and we're at a tipping point there and we need you there. If I'd have said no... Uh, at this stage of my life, yeah, I'm, you know, it's a good question, DJ. I mean, I, I probably, I, I would regret not being there because, you know, in the end, again, that's a, that's a, that's a case of journalism you know, changing things because under great risk, and a lot of journalists died there. Friends of mine died there. I was with, them. um, and. But it was the fact that we kept going and kept reporting despite threats of being jailed and being shot at and everything else by South, the, the apartheid government. Um, you know, in the end, 
sanctions were put on by the international community. It changed. And I was able to shake hands with Nelson Mandela when he got back to Soweto on the first day when he was released from prison. So um, I, <clears throat> this is what I think. Okay. If my kids would have grown up to be really problems, I would have really, I would have regretted more going to all those places. But remarkably, because of their mother, they've all turned out to be great kids. And, um, and despite me, uh, so I can have my cake and eat it too. That's very selfish, and I'll I'll admit it. But well, um, I I think that leads into my next question. So with the mom being so strong and you saying that, how do you make that up to her? How do you make all those years up to her? Well, we ended up getting divorced. Okay. And I remarried later on, and so, you know, uh, there was no, you know making up on that we didn't you know we didn't get divorced until after i returned to the united states in you know the mid 90s and i was national correspondent for nbc based out of chicago and and reporting for nbc nightly news and today show um and so uh it you know Events passed, you know, that event passed me by. There was no going back on, on that. And so that, that had an impact on, on, the, on, the, uh, on the children, especially my son, uh, who was old enough to know what, you know, was going on. And that is what led to him going on the hornet's nest. I was going alone. I wasn't bringing him because I knew how dangerous this was going to be. Uh, but he said, Pop, he said, I want to know, as you saw in the film, I want to know why you chose this over me all these years. And, uh, and he, he saw it, you know, uh, he saw it firsthand and now he's in the business. He's, he is, a you know, at ABC news in New York, he's actually behind the scenes. He's a producer. Um, and he covers, you know, he's not in Ukraine right now, but you know, very, very likely we'll end up there. Um, and I really, I want him to say no. I mean, right now he just got married and he did say no because I, you know, we talked about that over there. You know, he, at some point down the line, he'll end up going, but he said right now, he told ABC, no, I'm not going right now. I, I just got married and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not leaving my wife. Uh, right now to do this. I'm going to, I'm not going to make the same mistakes my father did. And that was a proud moment. This, that, that just occurred a couple of weeks ago. Uh, so, you know, maybe, uh, you know, some good did come. Uh, well, a lot of good came from him being with me. We were told a lot of stories and he grew up really fast because um, he was basically still a college kid and he came with me. But, you know, in in the back of his mind and stuff we discussed, he wasn't going to make the same mistakes as Pop made, and um, and I'm proud of him for that. Well, let me ask you one more question, if it's not getting too deep into it. But after you get a divorce and you remarry, mm -hmm. um, how far along in your career are you when you remarry? Uh, you know, I am. Uh, 
I am working for NBC News and uh, being made an offer I couldn't refuse from CNN. I was basically at the height of my my career. Um, I had just come back from years overseas. I had won, you know, several Emmys for my reporting and the Peabody and other awards and um, and. Uh, I'd made a pledge when I left CNN the first time in 1984 that I'd come back someday, and I fulfilled that pledge in 1999 uh, and created in 2000 the CNN Terrorism Investigation Unit based on looming threats that were coming uh, and did come. Well, uh, yeah. And, and so I, you know, at that point, yeah, no, I was, I was, at, I was at the height of my career, frankly. So we're about 20 years into your career, though, 19, 20 years into your career. Yeah, correct. Uh, network okay. career. Okay. And I start, hey, I started out at a 250-watt radio station in Ponca City, Oklahoma. And I worked, uh, worked radio in Oklahoma City. Uh, I, I worked TV for a couple of years in Oklahoma City. And then when, 19, you know, when CNN called me and said, hey, would you want to be our first reporter? I said, yeah. <laughs> Well, of course. I, you know, I, I, you know, journalism to me was kind of like joining the Navy. It, you know, I wanted to get out of Oklahoma for a while too. <laughs> Doesn't know, everybody? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, 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 for sure. But I love my state, you know, and absolutely. Um, yeah, but you know, you want to get out for a while, and then you appreciate it more when you come back. You know, four decades later. It's, it's a, yeah, I never thought I'd want to come back, but it, it's very true. You do miss it. Um. The point that I was saying all that to was at 20 years in, you get remarried. Do you see the same problems occur or are, are you smarter about beating those things? Uh, I'm smarter. Yeah. we got a great marriage and, uh, but <laughs> you know, my, when I took that CNN job again, it was what, you know, same thing happened again. I go to CNN, uh, all, you know, we're in an apartment waiting for the furniture to come. We found at least a real house to move into. Uh, and CNN said, uh, you know, at that moment, Kosovo breaks, the war in Kosovo. And I get sent to Kosovo. And my wife uh, is stuck with all the boxes and all the moving, and all of that. And, you know, here we go again. But I did try harder uh, this time. I was gone a lot, especially, you know, after 9-11, I didn't come home for months, you know. So, um, but I think I was, I was able to prep uh, Catherine, uh, my wife, for what was to come. Uh, she knew what this job entailed because I was complete, I was transparent up front what this might be like. <laughs> and then it was, um, but, uh, you know, we, you know, I, I made, uh, really strong efforts to, which I uh, didn't do as much before to, let's say if I was on assignment in Kosovo, I'd have my wife come over and meet me in Italy, so when I I could take a five day break or something, and then and then she she'd go back, uh, go back home. 
uh, or I, I wouldn't spend as long as in one location as normally I would. I, you know, in places that weren't dangerous, I try to take her with me, you know, so I try to do things a little different. I'm, I'm glad that you, you learned from it because it seems like you really did grow from it all and, and kind of figured out how to continue getting both worlds. Like you said, have your cake and eat it too. And I, I think you balanced it very well. I think as we get into it a little later on, it became a little precarious when you had to balance your son with you being embedded in the documentary. And we're going to go into full detail about that. The next part of our conversation that I want to do is I want to talk about some specific stories that you um, were a part of, because I think that they were world changing stories. Like you've been talking about having that front row seat to it. And I want to start with El Salvador in 85. Now, mm -hmm. everything that I was looking, you were kidnapped there. Um, you were threatened all these with different execution. things. Yeah. So yeah. I, I'm guessing that you were there for Zona Rosa, the, the terrorist attacks and all that. Is that what you were there for? Or were you covering something else while you were there? Oh, I lived there. Okay. I lived there in Managua. I had two residences, and I was there for the Zona Rosa. I lived about, oh, eight blocks away. We heard the bullets and rushed to the scene, and we were the first, we were the first people on the scene. Um, I can't, I can't get that out of my mind. Um, I can still, I remember that night vividly. And, uh, you know, I, one, one thing that sticks in my mind is, is one, one of the victims of that attack that, that you know, at the restaurant in the Zona Rosa, um, you know, I, I, I remember it, for some reason, this continues to stick in my mind. And I think it's because I don't have to see the faces, but I can remember the, the fork in the hand of one of the Marines. Uh, and still in his hand as he, as he lay there dead. Um, and uh, no, no, I, I lived there, uh, you know, and, uh, and that was back in the days when the networks had bureaus all over the world uh, where, you know, we didn't parachute in anywhere. We had correspondents everywhere. Um, and so I, yeah, I lived in both locations. And when I was kidnapped, I was going to work. What what was the reason? First off, I've got two questions. One, I want to talk about your thoughts about that night when you see that Marine. What do you think it was with everything you've seen in your life? Because you have been a part of some major incidents. What was it about that that stuck out in your mind? And I always speak on the show from a law enforcement perspective. And there's things that that if I go to a certain place, I remember things that happen what was it about that that made that stick in your mind, you think? It was the fact that violence uh, comes unannounced. And, you know, and here was a group of Marines, you know, the, the embassy guards at, at, at the uh, U.S. Embassy in San Salvador, who were just out having a nice dinner with friends and girlfriends at a popular place there. And, um, you know, these were young men who were doing their jobs and just kicking back for a little bit. And 
and didn't have a chance to fight back. I mean, you know, violence hit them unannounced, just like it hit me when I was kidnapped. You know, you you don't you don't expect you know you don't expect it's coming, and 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 I, you know, I don't. I, I guess we all have our own defense mechanisms we come up with to try to shield us from, and I, I'm speaking if you law enforcement or you in the army, uh, you know, me as a journalist, you know, we're exposed to things that no one should ever have to see. And um, I think that it, it was, um, it, it just was the, the uselessness of it all. I mean, you know, this, this guerrilla force that, you know, uh, wasn't going to take over El Salvador, you know, they were strong in certain areas, but, uh, you know, it, this was going to be fought to a stalemate and there was going to have to be a political settlement. And there was, I mean, you know, they finally, they had elections and, and finally the guerrillas came into the fold and then a lot of those guerrillas became criminal organizations in El Salvador, <laughs> you know, they, you know, they changed, they kept the same weapons, just changed from freedom fighter to criminal. Um, and I think that, um, it, you know, just, I think the thing that gets me the most, uh, are, are, children um who you know i've seen killed uh in wars you know quote unquote collateral damage uh and our service men and women uh who have died uh because they're there serving us you know uh that is the extreme in public service and to see them um, giving their lives um, and and being the one there that the first one there seeing that and knowing what that what that looked like what that meant um, was was incredible you know disturbs me and still disturbs me uh, you know what you do is what I tended to do all those years um, was to lock up those bad memories, let's say the Sovereign Shatila massacres in Beirut in 1982. Um, and I was there, you know, in Beirut for the Israeli invasion into Lebanon and everything that happened then. Um, and then there was this, you can look it up online if you're not familiar with the Sovereign Shatila massacre, but hundreds, I, literally, actually thousands of basically uh, women and children were massacred by a Christian militia. These were Palestinians in a camp. And uh, so, you know, I, I've got vivid images from that that I try not to remember. And you try to lock that stuff in the back of your mind. Eventually, something happens and that lock box breaks. And for me, that something was, uh, you know, being the target of a suicide bombing in Baghdad that, that, uh, roughed me up a little bit, uh, a thousand pound bomb and a 2000 pound bomb within uh, 20 seconds of each other. Um, and so 
I, um, you know, when that happened to me, because frankly, what you do is, hey, man, yeah, this, I have nothing to hide. I like talking about this now because maybe it helps other people. Uh, the way I tried to cope with all this stuff over the years was by drinking a lot of alcohol. And I drank a lot. <clears throat> and I started drinking more and more. And after that deal, I mean, that really, and I, you know, I was right there, full-blown alcoholic. Uh, and, and luckily, my family, you know, they recognized it. And they said, you need to get help. And what I was doing was self-medicating. You know, that's exactly what I was doing. And I, and I, hey, I know a lot of my vet friends who've gone down that same path. And I talk to them openly about this uh, because people tend, tend to think that, you know, because you survived all these years, you got to be 10 foot tall and balls the size of, of bowling balls. Well, no, I'm not. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I am an imperfect human being who suffers from the same thing other people do. And I got help. And that's kind of what led to the hornet's nest, frankly. Uh, you know, I, I went, I mean, I was the poster boy for post-traumatic stress. You know, I went to an alcoholic treatment center in Atlanta called TRC. And uh, generally that treatment center is for pilots and physicians. Uh, who are alcoholics and it, you know, it's very specialized and man, they love to get their hands on me because they hadn't seen anyone like me before. <laughs> you know, they said, man, this guy's off the scale on PTS. And, um, but you know, I stuck with it yeah, inpatient for four months. Uh, and you know, still go to meetings to this day. Um, you know, AA meetings to this day and try, uh, try my best to do the next right thing, as we say in Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, and so, but it's, it's funny, you know, when you come back from something like that, and I felt like I was good to go. I got, you know, I got help. I continue. I didn't think I was cured by any means. It's a day, day, daily thing. And, um, you know, you got to keep on top of it. And, and I came back to work. I wanted to get back out there doing what I was doing, but they, NBC management, and they were great. Uh, I had nothing bad to say about them uh, at all. They just felt, uh, they, were treat they were treating me like I was a fragile egg and I didn't want to be treated that way. Um, and so uh, 2005, comes along. Uh, I'm in that suicide bombing <clears throat> that was targeted. I was a target for I didn't die, but a lot of other people did. Our Iraqi neighbors, we had 12 foot blast walls, they blew a hole through it. And the second truck was supposed to the first truck blew a hole through the wall. It's 1000 pounds and it's all on our security cameras. And uh, you know, you can see it. And I just remember getting up in the morning uh, with the Baghdad alarm clock, which was all the roadside bombs that would go off during rush hour in the morning in Baghdad and said, up oh, another day in Baghdad. And I stood up and walked out of my head, a little suite, walked out of my bedroom and into the kitchen area. And there was a, 
you know, as I was walking that way, I saw the brightest light I ever saw in my life. Then I heard this thunder clap, like still to this day, I've never heard a sound like it. And um, uh, I had the sensation of flying because I was flying through the air. Uh, you know, the force of the blast blew me against the wall. And people don't realize we're actually pretty highly trained, you know, to in, in combat situations. Um, and so we it's drilled into us where there's one bomb, there's two. And as I got up and I was dazed and room is partially on fire and glass everywhere and I'm cut and and I'm my head had hit the wall. I, I stood up and I thought, oh no, second bomb. And I went to get down. Same thing happened, but this was bigger. And this was the 2,000 pounder size of the Oklahoma City bomb. Uh, and the, the U.S. Army investigation, I, this is all based on the investigation they did of what happened. Uh, and it, it uh, you know, knocked me unconscious. I had a pretty severe traumatic brain injury. And um, uh, it it took me, you know, it took me a, a, a while to uh, recover. And what I told you happened, you know, going to the uh, the alcohol treatment center in Atlanta, uh, called Talbot. Um, and I I you know came out of that and. I decided that I wanted to go back uh, and continue to report, which is my specialty on 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 terrorism networks, uh, which in itself is a whole nother challenge. You're constantly a target. Uh, and at first, and I told him, I said, look, guys, and I also wanted to go back to Iraq and continue to work there because I'd work two month shifts. I'd go into Baghdad, work two months, come out for one month, and then go back in for two months, which is a stupid rotation because you come back and you're, you know, the Hurt Locker portrayed it beautifully when, you know, he went into the grocery store with all that plenty on the shelf, just, and it was overwhelming to me. I can remember going into grocery stores and by the time you get your head almost straight and I'd be driving down I-35 and scanning the road you know, <laughs> constantly looking for roadside bombs. Yeah, right. I couldn't get out of it. By the time I was kind of relaxed, I was back in Baghdad. And so I went to I went to NBC and I said, look, guys, we we're spending over a million dollars a month on security at our bureau in Baghdad. And we were. Uh, and I said, let's go back to old traditions. Let's go back to what my hero did, Ernie Pyle in World War Two. Let's just Let's just tell the story of our, our of our men and women in uniform and what they're doing there, because that's what the American public cares about. You don't have to pay a million dollars a month in security. I got the best security on earth. I got the U.S. Army and the U.S. Marines. And um, and they said, we like that idea. And then they said, well, we think it's too dangerous. And that's what led to the hornet's nest. I didn't want to be treated like that fragile egg that I told you about. I said, you know, I love it here. I love you guys, but I'm going back myself and I'm going to make a film. Um, and, and that's how the Hornet's Nest came about. 
Do you think they were treating you like that because they were worried about a relapse? Do you think they were worried that something Probably. would actually yeah, happen no, to they you? Had what? My interest, they had my interest at heart. Yeah, NBC for sure had my interest at heart. Um, I didn't have my interest at, at heart. I, I thought it was in my, and it was. I mean, I kept with it, and I was much, you know, I'd, you know, I, I could cope with it much more. I wasn't, you know, wasn't uh, drinking, but I felt it was unfin unfinished business, and I needed to be there. And I'm good at this. It's, you know, it's, you know, I'm good at staying alive. I mean, I, I I'm good at getting to where things are happening and not getting killed in the process. That's one thing I'm very good at. Um, and uh, they were certainly looking after my interests. Uh, but <laughs> I wanted it to be like before and it wasn't, but, and so I did it on my own and, and you know, something, one door closes as we heard all of our lives, another one, another one opens. And what opened was the film, the hornet's nest. And, and, and then I ended up, hell, I, you know, I ended up working for ABC. Uh, ABC called me and said, Hey, we heard you left NBC. You want to do this for us in Afghanistan? <laughs> And I said, sure. <laughs> so they didn't have all that history, although it's a small business and everyone, you know, everyone knew, you know, my story. Uh, there, there was no hiding. Everyone knew my story and, and I was open about it. And, uh, and uh, I did a good job for ABC there, you know, and while I was making the film, we won a couple of more national Emmys uh, for what we did uh, our, our coverage for ABC news in Afghanistan. And it was one of the most valuable two years of my life. Uh, number one, I had my son with me constantly. And number two, it was a real, you know, my job is to cover heroes. Um, and it was a real honor to cover those folks. And all you have to do is look at what's going on with the Russian army now, <laughs> And how they're operating in Ukraine, and you know how how uh, our soldiers are trained, and you know it's not a conscript army like the Russians, and you know although the Russians do have some highly trained professionals, but um, it 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 was just an honor being there, and 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 I didn't want to be that guy who parachutes in real fast to tell the story. I you know my my whole point on this was you have to eat what they eat, sleep where they sleep, step where they step, or you can't tell their story and well, take the same risks they take. You would agree that that's how you earn trust too. Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. And you know, word got around on the battlefield. Uh, I was welcome to every unit. Um, and, uh, you know, people knew, you know, I, I was actually probably the, I was the only reporter who covered Afghanistan the way Vietnam was covered in terms of getting on a helicopter like my friend Joe Galloway did. And we were soldiers. Uh, if, you know, if you remember that movie, you know, he, he just hopped on there. Well, you could do that. You know, I had the same thing. I had to, you know, I had to tell them where I was going, but no one ever tried to stop me from going anywhere. Uh, and they wanted their stories told. You know, the commanders wanted the stories of their soldiers and their Marines told because they were in as much awe of them as, as I was. And, um, 
but you know i went in there you know and they knew you know if, if something went wrong and we killed a bunch of civilians uh you know, it's being recorded on it. yeah but you know what happened the flip side actually happened you know I, I mean, let me just tell another quick story here okay that i think i haven't told before we were on a mission in kunar province uh and i was with no slack battalion this featured heavily in the film they're the ones that lost the the six guys on that but uh uh on that operation strong eagle and and we were you know we were trapped for nine days fighting for our lives uh in the mountains but um before that um particular battle about six months before there was another operation same battalion led by uh lieutenant colonel jb val who is now a uh, a general and deputy commander of the 25th infantry in hawaii um wonderful man uh, and I, I think he should be chairman of the joint chief someday i mean he's that good um but we were on an operation and it was in this operation in, in basically almost the same area um, that the Hornet's Nest is filmed in, which a few miles away, right on the Pakistan border. And this was an area no Americans have been for. The Soviets, when they occupied Afghanistan, would never go to this place. Well, we went. And, um, the, you know, fly the flag. We're, we're here, folks. And it was a Taliban stronghold. Uh, well... We get there, and this is all during a, a time of, of great uncertainty about our air campaign because the Taliban had launched a rather successful disinformation campaign about civ civilian casualties. And there were legitimate, uh, I mean, reports of civilian casualties, you know, bombs. I don't care, you know, the whole thing about precision bombing, <clears throat> you know, yeah, you can be kind of precise, but it's still going to kill civilians. Right. And so civilians die. But in this case, and, and it was such a hot topic that, that uh, Hamid Karzai, the president of Afghanistan, was, was going to make a public, if there was another, one more thing, he was going, we were being told, he was going to make an announcement that he wanted no more U.S. air bombardments going on in Afghanistan, which would have really paralyzed us. Um, so I went on this operation and I watched everything and, and I was with the units and, and the, uh, there were no civilians killed in this. I would have seen it. And suddenly we get a call from headquarters, uh, in Bagram saying they, uh, the Taliban is saying that, uh, an American operation, your operation killed several children in a school and colonel val said well and i'm sitting there next to him said i'm sitting here looking at that school now over the village i could see it he said hadn't been touched so we went down to talk to the village elders and they didn't know there was a reporter with him and we walked down there and i sit kind of silently as they're saying you killed you know, talking to Colonel Val saying, you killed these children. And, and they said, well, where are they? I said, well, they're, they're a ways away, but you did kill them. And, 
you know, uh, uh, you, you massacred these children. Well, I knew that was BS. Uh, so finally I'd had enough <laughs> and I stood up and I introduced myself and I said, and I had the translator and I said, I'm Mike Betcher. I work for ABC News and BBC and, and ABC teamed with BBC. And so that is true. And I knew that they would know what BBC was. They probably wouldn't know what ABC was, but they knew it because they listened to BBC uh, radio, Pashto, you know, and, uh, and I said, I want to document this. Show me where these children are. I want to see the bodies. Suddenly they all huddled up together, the elders, and then they ran off. And I, and you know, the Colonel Val and the soldiers were all looking at each other and, and I go chasing after him. And then the army goes chasing after me and I go running after him down to a riverbed and there on the riverbed laid out were a dozen uh, men in their twenties and thirties with beards. They were Taliban uh, who had been killed. They weren't children. They were Taliban fighters. Uh, and the fact that a reporter was there, frankly, again, that, that kind of changed the course of history because they might have shut down that air campaign. Uh, now, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Maybe we should have gotten out of Afghanistan earlier. Maybe that was a chance to get out. But regardless, having a reporter there uh, was the only way to combat disinformation, someone reporting the facts. I want to talk about, I want to get into that final mission of the hornet's nest, but I, I want to go back a little bit if we can. And I want to talk about a big one that was big in my life, uh, and I know it was big in yours being from Oklahoma. I want to talk about the Oklahoma City bombing. Sure. Uh, April 19th, 1995, Timothy McVeigh, as we know, sets a bomb in front, blows up the federal building. Go through what you're doing in your career at this point, how this affects you, and what you're doing to report on it. I'm in Chicago as a national correspondent for NBC News, as I mentioned earlier. And on April 19th, 1995, I pick up the phone to call the senior vice president of NBC News to tell him that I'm leaving the network, my contract's up, and I'm leaving the network to fulfill that promise to go to CNN. Um, and this is 95. I, I actually went to CNN in 99 and that's where the Oklahoma city bombing comes in. Uh, he said, Mike, that we don't want you to leave. And he said, we'll talk about that later. But right now he said, ironically, turn on CNN and I turn on CNN and there's the Alfred P. Murrah federal building on fire and the front blown clean off of it. And they said, there's a Learjet waiting for you at Midway Airport, be on it. And I raced to Midway, got on that jet with my team. We landed in Oklahoma City, I would say around 1230. Uh, and, you know, this wasn't just, you know, I wasn't in Beirut or I wasn't in Kosovo or I wasn't in South Africa or El Salvador. This was my home. Uh, and it upset me. And um, it, it, and you know, when I got there, I, I just couldn't believe it. I mean, it, that's a building I'd been into 
dozens, if not hundreds of times when I lived in Oklahoma City and was reporting in radio and, and in TV. And um, what are your and I don't want to interrupt you, but the, but there's specific things that I wanted to ask you about this, because I, yeah, really, I, I really I really I, I really attach to this story. Um, uh-huh. And when you get there, what are your first thoughts? Because I remember I was a senior in high school. They brought everyone to the middle uh, of the school, played it on the news. Um, school was released for the day. It was a huge thing in Oklahoma. And like you said, this isn't another country. And we're in the heartland now where this happens. I mean, we're more middle America than you can ever be. And this happens. As your thoughts of flying there, when you land, and then the first time you look at the building, when you're on the ground and you see it in real life and it becomes a tangible, physical thing, what are your thoughts and how do they change through that whole progression? I thought it looked like Kobar Towers in Saudi Arabia that was blown up, the, the American apartment building that, that was attacked by Al-Qaeda that was in Saudi Arabia. Uh, that was my first thought. I said, this looks like Kobar Towers. And, and I, like everyone else, thought it must be Middle Eastern terror. It must be, you know, some terror organization from the Middle East. Uh, and then quickly, um, you know, you quickly discovered that that wasn't the case, that there was evidence coming to light. And, you know, and I had, you know, I had a lot of friends in law enforcement who had risen up to higher levels while I was gone elsewhere in the world during that point, because I'd been gone from the state 15 years at that point. Uh, I, and I knew the governor and uh, uh, Governor Keating. And, uh, you know, I, I basically, I knew everybody. And they, they were telling me things and they were telling me, no, Mike, it's not Arab terrorists. Um, it's homegrown. Uh, and that blew me away. And I'll tell you one other thing that really hit me. Um, there is a something that triggers me and triggers a lot of people who are in those uh, circumstances where there's a lot of death and it's the smell of death. Uh, very distinctive. Um, and, um, you know, after about day three there, day two, day three, I could smell that. And it, it brought me back, to, you know, to 13 years earlier in Beirut right that same smell in that sovereign shatila refugee camp where as far as you could see there were dead bodies um it, it brought me back to that and said where the hell is safe you know i thought you know we had that you know i was overseas and we didn't have to really worry about that at home and here it was at home you know a place i called home uh and that was that was a hard pill to swallow, and 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 so I and I wanted to get to the bottom of it. So for the next year, what I you know my job was to figure out what happened, uh, and you know I was dealing with various uh, you know extremist groups in various places around the country, trying to tell the story of of violent extremism, homegrown extremism. Uh, and, and also figuring out, you know, what was, 
how everything went down. You know, the original indictment in the Oklahoma City bombing, this Timothy McVeigh and uh, Terry Nichols and Fortier and others unknown. Uh, and I, I'm convinced to this day, you know, there were, there were more people who knew about this plan than, than, uh, than those three. Um, and, but uh, I, that was my job. And, and, you know, part of that goes because I was, because I covered terrorism so much, but when, when I was a kid at the University of Oklahoma, you know, people don't realize this, but Oklahoma had the first terrorism studies program in the nation uh, under Dr. Stephen Sloan, who is still a mentor of mine. He's still alive and lives about a mile away from me wow. here in Oklahoma City. And, and I, live, I live a mile away from the bomb site. I live just north of downtown. Um, and there are cracks in my basement here in this house we live in that happened when that earthquake hit from that 2,000 pound bomb. Um, and, you know, I, I uh, and that's, that's why I was always called on for that sort of thing, because, you know, my, my paper I did for when I was in college was the vulnerability of the U.S. pipeline and refinery system to terrorist attack, you know, and I, you know, hell, I was sneaking into refineries, showing how easy it was to get in and doing that sort of thing. And, I was a refinery kid, so I knew how to do that. You know, I knew my way around a refinery. And, um, uh, but, but I, you know, I knew quite a bit about terrorism. I'd experienced it myself in real life and, and, and uh, uh, witnessed it. And, and so, you know, that's why I was always called upon to do this. And that's why I wanted to see what was going on in America where we could have that kind of terrorism we associate with events in the Middle East, how could how could that happen here? And that that was really something that weighed heavily on. At, at that point, when when we're talking about terrorism and that's you know your specialty and stuff, when you see uh, Ruby Ridge, Waco, Oklahoma City, um, those are kind of the the trifecta. Are you seeing as a reporter and as a correspondent? Are you seeing that? Uh, there's a rise in homegrown terror at this point, and have you seen it grow even more now, or are we still mainly focused on foreign terror? I, I think we're still, up until three weeks ago, we were, we were focused primarily on foreign terror. I mean, I think, um, and I and I think that. Uh, the FBI, for example, they've got their eye on domestic terror. Those groups never went away. They just went into hibernation for a little bit. And they're back. And I worry that this, you know, could be repeated again because they're, um, it just feels that way to me. And I, I, I think we need to be, you know, need to be looking at that. Look, we can disagree. We don't have to blow each other up, for God's sake. Come on. I mean, let's, let's, let's talk this out. We're Americans. You know, we're blessed to be born in this great country. And, um, and it is a great country and continues to be a great country. Uh, but we got we to gotta work at it. 
And, you know, violence is not the answer. Uh, you know, the ballot is the answer. And, uh, and I worry uh, that what can happen is, you know, the next, you know, what happens in Ukraine this spring will set the course of history for the next 50 years, the global order. Uh, I really firmly believe that. And I believe because it is so important, everybody's eyes is, is, are over there. Uh, and I'm really, I'm really concerned we're, we'll take our eyes off the ball and we'll have, again, the repeat of an Oklahoma City somewhere else in this country. I worry about that. Well, can you go into that a little bit? I, I, I want to talk about McVeigh and you interviewing him, but you brought that up. And so I'd like to stay kind of on that hot iron of with everything happening there, you think that will change the course of the world for the next 50 years? I mean, there has yes. to be some big stuff behind that to change the course of humanity for 50 years. Yeah, it'll change. Uh, it will change. I mean, it already has changed it. I mean, that, that, great Russian threat, that, that army that we were, uh, you know, so worried about turns out to be kind of an empty shell, frankly, if they're not on a rail line or a main highway, they're in trouble because they can't resupply themselves. And that they're usually, you know, they're sitting ducks. They just, you know, they have the numbers, they have the nuclear weapons. Basically they're a second rate, third rate military power with nuclear weapons is what they are. But isn't that the most dangerous kind? Uh, yeah, can be. But look, he is what what Putin is doing is using uh, the threat of of uh, nuclear weapons to get his way. And and you know I've I've actually I've come around on this in the last three weeks a little bit. I was really worried about a nuclear exchange. You know I'm a kid who grew up. Uh, doing duck and cover drills during the Cuban boat lift, uh, not the Cuban boat lift, during the Cuban missile crisis. Um, you know, I can remember in, in first grade doing that. Remember that, that you would real. hide under your desk to stop a, a bomb. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. And, now they cancel and, school and, if and, it snows. And, and I always laugh. We were proud of the fact that, uh, as kids that, Ponca City was was on the on the Soviet Union's list to hit because most of the jet fuel in the nation was, is refined in Ponca City, <laughs> so we were kind of that kind of made us important, you know. Uh, and um, so uh, I I think he's using that cover uh, to to get his way, and he's going to keep doing it. He is. He's my age. He was in Berlin the same time I was. And I, I know how he felt because the joy I was feeling rushing Brandenburg Gate with the East Berliners, which I did. I was right there with him as they ran for the Brandenburg Gate. That, and, and, you know, everyone has seen the photos of him up on the wall. Well, I was right there with him. Uh, that joy I was feeling that night, he was being crushed. His soul, Vladimir Putin's soul as a KGB officer, was being crushed that night. And 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 that's what I know what motivates him because I was there. 
and well, can we talk about that a little bit let up and i th- actually think we're either going to fight this war eventually in in it's either going to be in ukraine or it's going to be in poland or romania or slovakia uh, or the baltic states and you know he chose the battlefield now um in ukraine and frankly turns out that may be the perfect battlefield from which for us to 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 fight him uh because um you know as a person who worked in the old soviet union and just saw how miserable it was i mean they're back to those days now overnight because of all the economic sanctions they're back to that now and um I, I really think that I think that we, you know, there's a risk. There's a risk he could use nuclear weapons at any time. But I think that, you know, again, a bully, the best way to confront a bully is to go head on with him. You can't keep giving him rope. And 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 I've really changed my mind on this in the last three weeks. And I think it's just the, you know, typical old style Soviet tactic tactics of surrounding a city and uh you know destroying it uh and taking it that way you know uh and i think i i really do firmly believe that the course of events you know what's gonna what system's gonna win out here i I think a lot is at stake right now and i don't think people are feeling it We, we feel it we're not really we're paying the price at the gas pump uh, prices dip today so you know prices are going down a little bit on gasoline but that's kind of what we're paying uh i mean those people over there are paying for their lives uh, they have so the ukrainians have so impressed me uh with their resolve that it is really you know uh as winston churchill's says a man who can't change his mind can't change anything and i i've changed my mind on this i really think that we need uh, to you know nato with our allies we're either going to fight it now or we're going to fight it down the road here and i don't think we can kick the can down the road anymore we got a whole western flank of that country that's all they're all nato countries and it's just like in the vietnam war when Viet Cong were using Laos and Cambodia to funnel weapons in, and that's why we could never win that war. Uh, same thing's happening to the Soviets, uh, to the Russians. Sorry, I can't get it out of my mind. To the Russians uh, in um, in Ukraine right now. So, um, you know, we know that their army is now depleted. We know that they can't resupply it, um, and but you know the only other hope is is that something else rises from the inside and the reports that we're seeing now you know i also i'm also a senior fellow on the ou center for intelligence and national security so i and uh, i keep my fingers on the pulse here a little bit uh and you know reports are starting to filter out now about the head of the russian foreign intelligence service the fsb under house arrest and his number two under house arrest there's something going on um and are you saying a coup uh, 
you know, I, I think, yeah, that that is a possibility, and that would be the best possibility for everybody that someone you know takes inside Russia takes uh, takes Putin down, um, and that may be wishful thinking, but there's something going on there, and and you know as as and I'm not sure it's going to be a case uh, of of body bags going home because I think they're going to delay that. But when parents don't hear from their from their children who they know are in you know fighting in Ukraine after a period of time, uh, they don't they don't hear anything. They're going to know something's up, and and that that child never comes home. Uh, Putin's up against the clock. He doesn't have much time and i think there's just the li- same likelihood he'll lash out when he runs out of time as he does if we confront him uh head on and um uh and and i think i i think it has to be done in a way that doesn't bring us right up to the russian border but protects the capital kiev and the west um and and i i think that that is, I think that's what we have to do. Uh, that, you know, I've tried to summon all the experiences I've had, you know, and someone who knows the Russians, who's worked in, in Russia, who's worked all over Eastern Europe, spent four years, you know, covering all of that area. Uh, and I, and, and seen also how, uh, authoritarian regimes react when they're confronted. Uh, another war I covered, same thing the British did in, in the Falklands. You know, you had you had the military junta in Argentina who started a war so they could stay in power. They needed something to deflect attention of the Argentinian people who weren't doing very well economically. And they started a war and Margaret Thatcher said, eh, not on my watch. You know, we may not be the same military we were uh, uh, a century before, but we're gonna we're we're gonna take you on. Now the Argentinians didn't have nuclear weapons, but um, still, I I I think there are a lot of lessons, and I'm trying to draw upon the lessons I've learned with that front row seat to history. And frankly, you're hearing my best estimation of what I think we should do. I don't know all the information or the facts on the ground. I know probably no more than most people, but um, but that's what I believe right now, DJ. Let me ask you one final question about Russia and everything that's going on. Is this the Cold War of the 80s? Is this the rebooted version of the Cold War? It will be if Ukraine ends in a stalemate, which I, you know, I think it will. I mean, under no circumstance can we let Kiev fall, the capital fall. We just can't let, they cannot win there. They cannot. Uh, I mean, we can't allow it. Can they? Continually, you know, to bombing Kiev into the Stone Age, like Kharkiv and Mariupol? Uh, Yeah, no, they could eventually win that way. We can't let them. 
it's that important. If they win there, yeah, we're locked into a more dangerous period. And that's why I say the next three months, mud season in that part of the world, and the Soviets are going to Soviets again. I keep going back. The Russians are <laughs> going to be bogged down in the mud. And with someone shooting at them, hey, if you've ever, and, and you may have experienced this, but I've been in urban warfare in Baghdad, for example, and it's no fun because you don't know where it's coming at you from. Uh, it, it, any window is a possible window for a sniper. And that's why they're blowing all the buildings up and everything else to make it easier for an urban warfare. If you got nothing but rubble, you know, it's, it's easier to take a city than one that's standing with buildings. Uh, and that's one of the tactics going on. There's something else that's going on too, is that there's a turnover in the Russian army coming up here this spring. You know, they, they conscript on a yearly basis so there, is, there are soldiers who are serving her at the end of their terms in the, in the Russian army. They're now in Ukraine and a new batch that has just been trained in a new batch who has just been conscripted into the Russian army. Uh, and they don't do it on a continual basis. They do it on a yearly basis. And it, uh, you know, that's also a troubling thing for them. I mean, they're in a bind right now. And I think, they're, they're at a weak point, and I think that now's the time to strike because if we don't and they take it, take it they, learn, they will have learned a lot of lessons from there, and they'll become a bigger threat to democracies uh, of Europe and our own. Yeah, and when you speak about urban warfare, I can only speak, and it's from a law enforcement perspective. You know, you've been to Iraq and all those different things, and I have buddies that have been over there. and. I think if we get to that over there, uh, it, it's going to drag on a lot longer than, than anyone thought it would. And and that's what we don't want to happen. Now, the last yeah. thing that, that I want to talk about all your experience, because we've talked about all these different places you've been, all these different things you've seen is what drew me to you in the first place was this hornet's nest and, and mm-hmm. you going over with your son. And, and it struck me and I have a lot of questions about it. Um, and I just want to know when he says he's going over with you, your thoughts on it. And then are you looking forward to it as you kind of come around to the decision that he's going? Cause he says he's going with or without you. Do you change your feelings on it? And what do you kind of hope to achieve out of it? Well, when he first told me that no way was I going to let that happen. And I mean, he was adamant and, you know, I came to the conclusion He's, you know, he was 21 um, and he was making that choice and I felt I owed it to him. You know, eventually I felt that way, uh, but I knew he had no idea what he was getting into. Uh, and I did. And I didn't like it because ever, you know, I actually prefer working alone now because I don't want anyone else killed if something happens to me you know it's just me i don't want anyone else uh hurt or uh, or, or killed and um i you know i was constantly you know at the beginning you know trying to trying to train him up in a real, <laughs> real hurry um and 
but it's impossible. You can train all you want, but when you hit real life situations, that's where you, know, you put that into practice and you learn. And he learned very quickly. So yeah, he did. He had some of my DNA there and, and, uh, you know, I saw how he was performing and, uh, plus it also helped me because, you know, I was always the oldest man on the battlefield when I was in Afghanistan. There was no one except for village elders. There was no one older than me there, no one in the military. Um, and, uh, he could relate to the soldiers more easy. I mean, they tell they tell him stuff they wouldn't tell me because I was the old you know I was the old guy and by you know people knew about me on the battlefield and and uh, but um, he could uh, he could get to the real heart of things that I couldn't get to that a twenty one year old will tell another twenty one year old and not a you know a guy at that point I was you know in my late fifties so. Um, it, it, it turned out he became a huge asset during all of this. What were you hoping once you come around to it uh, and decide, you know, this is going to happen, you're starting to train him up. What are your goals for it? What do you want to achieve out of this going over there? Cause you were together for 15 months, right? Uh, actually it was, a, it was a total of two years. Uh, so 15 months that it was actually more than two years. It was 15 months straight in there uh, in Afghanistan. And then um, we had done Iraq before that together. So Carlos's first experience of combat was in Iraq. Um, and then we transitioned over to Afghanistan. And our intent was, uh, and that's one of the other reasons that I, I left NBC as well, because you know, the American people had hit war fatigue, understandably. But still, you know, when the surge was there, we had over 200,000 troops between Afghanistan and Iraq. And because of war fatigue, the networks were seeing that when the story would come on about the war, people were turning channels. You know, and they can measure all that. Uh, so they were doing less stories on the war, and I just did not think that was right. Uh, I felt that, you know, we asked for those people to wear the uniform of the United States of America uh, and represent us abroad, and then we send them over like the Romans sent their legions and forgot about them until they had a parade for them and they came back from Gaul, you know, or somewhere like that, uh, fighting the barbarians. Um, and I, you know, I just did not think that was right, that we needed to pay attention to the sacrifice that they were making. And so that, that was the motivation behind the hornet's nest. Pure, purely, simply, that was it to tell those stories. What was your goal between you and your son? Um, not for the film, what, for yeah, your no, relationship. To understand each other more, to be... I, you know, I wanted to have, you know, and people have told me this, they said, you know, usually dads take their sons on fishing trips. They don't usually take them to war. <laughs> uh, and I had, you know, 
and that's you know dads get to know their sons as they're you know on on trips like that you know and sitting down and talking well you know we were doing it in the middle of a war zone and um that that was what it was about was getting to know each other better because you know i i was gone for all those years and then um you know we get divorced and uh my um my son is living with my ex-wife and I see my son, you know, every other week uh, or every weekend. Uh, and, and eventually I'm not in Chicago anymore. So I'm flying from New York uh, to uh, Chicago to visit him or I'm then I'm transferred to Los Angeles and I'm flying Los Angeles to Chicago, you know, every week or every other week. Um, and it's, you know, uh, it was the one last chance in our lives uh, to really know each other. And I, I really know my son now, and he really knows me uh, because he walked in my footsteps and I walked in his as, as a kid who had an absentee dad. Um, uh, and despite all the, the the good things that may have occurred, and there were a lot of mostly bad things too that occurred, you know, in my life, you know, covering all those things, but it it, it, it was the last chance, uh, and we took advantage of it. We did, and and let me tell you, there's nothing nothing that that clears the mind for objectives and when you're being shot at every day. Uh, and not knowing how much more time you're going to have, you know, every mission you go on or you're not even on a mission, you know, just <laughs> in your, in your tent, uh, in your hooch, uh, you know, you can have a rocket hit and then you're gone. So we wanted to take advantage of every day, uh, that we had, and, you know, it was a concentrated period of father-son relationship believe me <laughs> was there tension in the beginning yeah yeah there was because uh i i wanted to be with my son but not there and <laughs> and, and i felt i felt that it uh i felt that anything happened to him i'd never forgive myself you know, I mean, it's going to be, it would be the, just horrific. Uh, you know, I've, it's one of those things that people take their own lives over, you know, and I, uh, I was, uh, I was, I was on edge at the beginning, but the more I got to know, uh, uh, got to know his abilities and how, he handled himself in diff difficult circumstances. And the more we got to know each other, I, I really, I, I, I felt I was blessed to have him there. Um, and I hope he felt the same way. I think he does. We talk all the time, you know, so, uh, and we're working on projects together. You know, I'm still in, I'm not just teaching. I mean, I've, you know, he's at ABC. I'm still working for ABC, but long form. 
And I, you know, I have a four-part Hulu series coming out in May, for example, um, a true crime series. So, um, and you know, we talk constantly. So we got lucky. We got lucky. We both lived. Uh, but you know, a lot of those uh, young men that we knew didn't come back. And they weren't there for their sons. And that's why, and, and their daughters when they came back. And I saw, you know, uh, women medevac uh, and women soldiers coming in as, tra as working with the women in villages who were trapped there with us. You know, there's no such thing as you're not on the front line. Women on the front line, they were there uh, and performing you know, just uh, fantastically, just doing their jobs, what they were trained to do. And so, you know, I, I just, you know, it was it was an honor to be able to see all of that and uh, and at the same time reconnect with my son. So the final question about you and your son, how much didn't you know about him when you get there? And how much did you learn about him by the time you're done with all this? You know, um, there's a lot I didn't know about my son. I, you know, I didn't know his emotions and, and I didn't know precisely his frailties. And uh, I knew that he was, uh, and I'm not just saying this, he's smarter than me. He's really, really smart. And this is a kid who read everything growing up. He loved to read. I mean, you know, if, if you're playing Jeopardy, you wanted him on your team, you know. Um, and uh, so, you know, I learned, you know, I learned, I learned firsthand the hurt that he felt uh, because of the divorce. You know, I, I really felt that. Um, and, uh, you know, there's no excusing that, uh, you know, it, it hurt him and it hurt my daughter, Isabella, who's younger than Carlos. Uh, but both of them have grown up to be really, uh, great kids. And I have a stepson, John, who's fantastic young man. He's a lawyer here in Oklahoma city. And, um, you know, so, it, it, and he was the, he is the son of, of my wife, um, who, who's also divorced and we both remarried. And, um, but, you know, I, I, I really, I, I think the main thing to answer your question is I, I was able to really understand the hurt that I caused. When you look back on it, is there anything you would change about that? Or would you keep it all the same? And I'm talking about uh, your time with him being embedded. Is there anything that you would change? Anything different that you would try and do? No. Or would you keep it all the same? Yeah, I'd keep it the same. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, as it's told in the movie, right before that final battle in Strong Eagle 2, it was time for him to rotate out and... He had some other things he was going to go on to, and he ended up going to work for ABC as a staff producer, and he had things he wanted to do. And I was actually, I knew this 
particular battle coming up wasn't going to be very pretty too so and we've we've been waiting for this particular mission for weeks and he could have very well been on the mission and not me i was in the, i was down south you know uh with the marines again and uh he was up in kunar and then i came up in the marines and joined up with him and then he went home uh and that 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 whole battle uh with no slack battalion against the taliban in uh, along the pakistan border in kunar province uh I, I i'm glad he wasn't there um it was uh, i honestly uh i had resigned myself to not coming back you know i i thought okay finally this is it um didn't think we we're gonna get out of that and really I, I and was, when did that set in when they opened us on, up on us uh you know we 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 landed on in Chinooks. So, so what had happened is this was a change in tactics. Before, we were coming in low and going high. So that meant, you know, American soldiers were coming in and and uh, MRAPs, uh, Humvees, um, and and we would be at the base of the mountains fighting our way up. Uh, Colonel Val had a different doctrine that uh, that he was developing. We go high and move down, and then have a force below as well, and then trap them in the middle. Well, that worked for a while in other operations, but the Taliban, they're not stupid. They're smart. They've been fighting in those mountains forever. And so they, you know, so they adapted, as the enemy always does. The enemy always has a vote. And they voted to going mid-mountain and hiding until we passed through. Uh, and then we were between them on the high side and the low side and basically surrounded uh, on all locations. And the force that was further down below, they were getting hit from the opposite ridge line. So we were all getting hit simultaneously. And when it came into uh, hand grenade, uh, uh, you know, Taliban were that close, close. They were hand grenade range. Uh, it said, okay. And people started going down, uh, and calling for help, calling for medics. Uh, and I knew, uh, I knew Taliban really close, you know, within a few feet to where I was, I thought this is it. And, you know, and I was prepared that it was going to be to the point of uh, that I was going to have to pick up a weapon, you know, which we're not supposed to do under the Geneva Convention, but in self-defense in the end, I'm going to pick up a weapon and I'm not going down easy. Of course. You know, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to fight for my life um, and the life of my buddies who are next to me. And, you know, I, yeah, at, at, that happens at some point, same thing happened to, Joe Galloway in uh, We Were Soldiers in, um, in, in the book and in, in the film. And, and it happened in real life. I didn't have to pick up a weapon, but I thought it was going to come to that um, because we were having quite a few wounded uh, and six killed almost immediately. Um, and it was, it was not looking good. And 
air power couldn't get to us because uh, we were socked in. Weather was bad. Um, and they were danger close. I mean, you know, we airstrikes were, you know, eventually after, oh, day two, day three, we started getting airstrikes and that helped. Uh, but all those strikes were danger close, you know, um, and, you know, it was, uh, uh, you know, and one air bomb were toast. Um, and so that was, that was what was going down at that, at that point, you know, that, that tactic of going high and going low, which was a smart tactic. It's just that at that particular battle, the Taliban had adapted and uh, we got caught in a vice. Well, it's a fantastic film. As I told you, I showed it to, to my entire family. I have in-laws in town. I showed it to all of them. It's a fantastic film. You, I think you really capture what these guys are feeling, what you're feeling, what Carlos is feeling, especially when we get to this final uh, battle. You see how people are reacting to it, what they're doing to save their brothers by their sides, all those different kinds of things. And throughout the whole film, you paint out different groups and, and their successes and their contributions into the war. It's like I said, it's absolutely fantastic. I don't want anyone to miss this. What I do want to talk about is your upcoming project that you have coming out. Uh, cause I want people to see this movie and I want them to kind of follow you. Now your, uh, your company is standing bear, correct? Yes. Standing bear productions. Uh, it's called standing bear because I'm from Ponca city, Oklahoma. And, uh, the chief of the Ponca tribe was chief standing bear in the 19th century. When the Poncas were moved from the Northern plains to Oklahoma uh standing bear's son died on the way to oklahoma in the trail of tears the northern trail of tears there there wasn't just one trail of tears from the east and the five civilized tribes that came up like the cherokees chickasaws choctaws seminoles uh, yeah, there were northern plains tribes as well and the Poncas were some of those and his son died on the way down uh, and he wanted to go back to Nebraska to bury his son. The army would not let him. Uh, he went anyway and was arrested. There was a trial and it was the first time a federal judge ruled in that trial that Native Americans were actually human beings. And so Standing Bear is the Martin Luther King of the 19th century. Uh, and uh, so I, I, you know, I, I'm influenced by, by that tradition from my hometown. I, I was, an, I'm not native, but I was a native dancer for a while. I, you know, can't grow up in certain towns in Oklahoma and, and not be steeped in, in native history and native culture and traditions. Um, and so that's why we call it Standing Bear. The project um, that I'm doing with ABC um, concerns the uh, Girl Scout murders that occurred in 1977 that I covered as a young reporter. Three Girl Scouts murdered in their tent uh, and, and raped. Uh, it's horrific. These were eight, nine, 10 year old girls. Uh, uh, the man arrested for it, Gina Roy Hart, was found not guilty, so the case remains open. Uh, and we go back revisiting what happened and 
and who might have done this after all these years. And it's because I'm going back through history to, to stories that I covered that aren't, uh, where, where there are still questions. There aren't answers yet. And so I want to answer those. That's one thing I want to do before I die is go back to a lot of these different things. So the first one up is this, and it will be a four part, uh, four one hour episodes on Hulu. Uh, I'm co-producing this with ABC News Studios. I'm the executive producer. And um, then in June, there will be two hours on ABC primetime, uh, a shortened version of that four hour that drops on Hulu. Uh, what's it called? Uh, the title right now, the title is, uh, the working title is still Girl Scout, the Girl Scout murders. Uh, but we, you know, that, that may change. Uh, we're in the final editing, uh, right now. So we're getting close. We have to deliver to Hulu by, uh, this month, later this month. And then they need 30 days to check everything and make sure everything is perfect and then it drops so anyway what's is, your uh, what's your drop date on that i'm sorry we don't know yet yeah oh, okay. we don't know exactly that so we're we're you know they're trying to we're all trying to figure out do we stick with that title i i think we should i mean that's what it's about uh we've been working with the families of the victims on this you know i've been and frankly, this came about because of COVID, because I was teaching my classes in OU. I was going stir crazy in the house. I was teaching remotely on Zoom. And I said, I want to do something else. And, and I said, I'm, I want to go back and look at the Girl Scout murders. And then I want to go back and look at other stories that I've covered that are not completely answered yet. What happened? What really happened? And uh, with, with the hindsight of years past, you know, we can... We can answer things, and technology can help us answer questions too. Absolutely. And so, um, it it um, we we don't know the exact date. I assume it'll be sometime in mid-May, but uh, you'll you'll it'll be heavily promoted by ABC News. There'll be stuff in Good Morning America about it, and World News, and other things. Um, and you know, it's. You know, when the Disney machine starts rolling, it's pretty impressive what the Disney <laughs> machine can do. <laughs> that is true. Where can everyone find you? If they want to see more about you, not just the Hornet's Nest, not just your Hulu series, where can they find you? Well, <laughs> you know, I'm not a big social media guy just because I try to stay, you know, I don't want to precisely what we began this conversation about, about opinion and news. Right. And I don't want to be caught in that trap of giving opinions. So, I mean, I, you know, I'm on Twitter and, uh, but I'm not real active. I'm, you know, Facebook, LinkedIn, you name it, all those things. I'm, I'm on I'm Instagram. I've, I'm not a TikTok guy yet, but you know, I have to get. Oh, I see that in your future. Start. Yeah, I see that's coming <laughs> in my future. I know I got to get to it, but Hey, you know, I'm old enough. I can say, screw it. You know, I, you know, but, um, you know, you, uh, uh, you know, you'll see this coming up. You can find the Hornet's Nest on uh, Prime. 
and also on Hulu, but it, on on Prime it had was on Netflix. Uh, the other producers of the Hornet's Nest tell me that it's now. I don't know. I need to double check this, but it's now the largest selling war documentary in history. Wow! Um, and we were in five hundred theaters, and that never happens with the documentary. We were in five hundred theaters when when it premiered in twenty fourteen. And it still lives. And I get I get messages every day uh, from people who've seen it. Uh, and it, you know, really, and as the Afghan war uh, wound down and ended, there were, you know, it was getting, you know, even a lot more uh, traffic. Um, and so you can see that film there, um, you know, out there buried and somewhere in those gajillion gigabytes or gajillion <laughs> digits or whatever that are out there some of my old stories that exist you know there you can the one you know because i'm 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 pre-internet and post-internet um and so a lot of the early sto stories don't you can't find them online later stories you can but I plan on doing other things. Uh, other, I got other stories up my sleeve, and you know, for example, one of the things I want to go back and look at is you mentioned earlier on uh, Lockerbie and Pan Am 103 that was blown up over Lockerbie, Scotland, which you know I was sent to Lockerbie, um, and I spent Christmas there, not at home with my kids. I spent Christmas. Our office was set up in a bar. Uh, which wasn't a bright thing to do because, you know, we were all so depressed. We were also drinking, you know, in the, in the office where it was a, it was a, it was a Scottish bar. Uh, you can imagine. Yeah. And, you know, just, just to see what, you know, the things we saw, you know, you hear about planes crashing, but you, you know, until you're on site of something like that, this was an actual explosion in midair and, the things you saw in trees and on the ground are, are totally unspeakable. Uh, but I, I, you know, I don't think we have the full story on that either. So there are many things I want to go. I want to go back to Oklahoma City bombing, I, you know, find out, okay, where there are others. There are things I want to do while I'm still alive. And, you know, I'm not going to get to all of them, but I'll get to as many things as I can do, you know, as long as there's some company out there like Hulu and Disney that that sees the value in doing that sort of thing. Well, I'm looking forward to all those things uh, that you're doing. I would, I would love for you to go back to El Salvador and do some of that stuff too. Um, but you're, you're, you're kind of, um, you're around everywhere. Like I, like you said, you keep a very low key profile, but you're kind of around everywhere. You're on Twitter, you're on Facebook, you're on Instagram. Yeah. You have this movie out, you have Hulu coming out. You're still, you're still out there. So I really want people to go check you out. Look him up on Twitter, Mike Betcher. Look him up on Facebook, Mike Betcher. Uh, check out this movie. Make sure you go see this movie. Uh, it's on Amazon. That's where I saw it. Like you said, uh, it's on Hulu. Um, I think that uh, you can pick it up on Vudu, too. I think you can buy it on there, too. So there's, there's definitely that. Uh, I think that we have uh, talked about a lot of stuff tonight. Uh, you have been in some amazing, amazing places. And the stories that you have, I would love to fill another two or three episodes of the show up with. Guys, that's going to be it for tonight. 
If you want more of me, you can find me on Instagram at the DTD underscore podcast. You can find me on Facebook at the DTD podcast. You can find me on YouTube at the DTD podcast. Remember this little QR code right here in the corner, wherever you're watching this from, take it, your camera, take a picture of it. It'll take you to all of our links. Don't forget our partners at the Stellet Institute with the Stellet Ganglion Block, working with people with PTS. Look those guys up, the stelletinstitute.com. Yeah, that works. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's an amazing thing, and I really want more people to check that out. So, guys, that's going to be it for tonight. That's Mike. I'm DJ. This has been the show. We'll catch you guys on the next one. See you later.